Well, as the psalm too exhorted the kings and the nations of the world to worship the Lord Jesus with godly fear, certainly that should be true of us. We come in godly fear, not flippant, not, not mindlessly, and not carelessly, but with the gravitas that the great King of kings is present here among us today. And so we come and we worship Him in the beauty of holiness, but with a, a heart that has reverence and respect for the great High King. And with great joy, knowing that we've been accepted in Him and in His presence today. Let us now hear from His Word from the 18th chapter of Matthew and the instructions that He has given to His church, beginning at verse 15, going down through verse 20. Now hear the king's decree and word. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Father, how thankful we are for this promise that where we are gathered together in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that his presence is with us. And as we tune our hearts in now to hear of your words to us, your instruction and your doctrine We pray that the Spirit of God would quicken our ears that they would hear and illuminate our eyes that they may see and soften our hearts that they may receive the Word with gladness. So as we gather here to the Word that is preached, we ask that Your Spirit would now govern our time and take command of our minds. Free them from distraction that we might be solely focused upon the words that our Lord Himself would have us to hear. I pray for the minister who now gives this message that you would anoint him with the freshness of your spirit that as he speaks it would be the oracles of God according to your divine word, according to your will, and by the Spirit's power. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been considering this passage for a number of weeks now, and we have considered the time of the informal confrontation that goes on from verses 15 and 16. And now as we come into verses 17 through 20, we enter the more formal aspect of what we call church discipline. And when a Christian is confronted with a sin and he continues in a state of unrepentance, 
And then two or three more go and they confront him again. And he continues in a hard state of an unrepentant heart. Then the last appeal then that will be given into that sinner is with the church. Verse 17 says, now tell it to the church. This is an unpleasant thing. And as we've noted in time past, no one likes this kind of confrontation where we go to somebody and confront them over their sin. And we tend to shy away from that to the degree that by and large the church doesn't practice church discipline the way it should any longer. At least in some segments of the church. And this is to us today. We're not worried about them out there. We're worried about what heritage should do and how we should think about the command of Christ. This is not a suggestion. That is not an option. This is part of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And we are to be about this even as little children, maintaining our humility and following the ways of Christ. So verse 17, when it says, tell it to the church, this implies that the church then speaks to this unrepentant brother or sister. Tell it to the church. It's notable here that it says the church. It doesn't say go air it out in public. This is the time that the members of that church are then to have an executive time together apart from non-members of the church, and it is within that circle that this now takes place. But what is the church? We looked at that last Lord's Day in somewhat of a preparation for the time we come to today. First of all, let me just repeat four of those points. The church consists of baptized disciples. Disciples are learner followers of Jesus Christ. Number two, these baptized disciples assemble themselves together for four main objectives that we found in Acts 2.42. To be indoctrinated with the teaching of the apostles. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of Christ and the apostles. But they also assembled together for fellowship. And this is really the partaking of and the sharing together in the life of, the, of this new life in Christ. And the, the edifying of one another with the spiritual gifts and the testimonies and praises of what God is doing. This is the sharing of life together. They continued also in the breaking of bread. And this is what we do every Lord's Day when we come together here. And they continued also in prayer. This is what those disciples of Christ assemble together to do. But third, the church is also disciples of Christ to assemble together for these four objectives, but they also are in agreement they are in agreement. And so as we looked at what a church is, as it differs from a Bible study or from a parachurch organization, um, it is essential that the people come together and be in agreement about what the Scriptures say and about what God says, and that we are to be of one mind and one spirit. It does not mean we all think the same things, but we are to be in unity in agreement on what the apostle teaching is. And number four, we also are accountable under scriptural leadership. 
As we think about all four of those, not one of the four, not three of the four, but all four of these things, they come together because we are all accountable for believing and practicing what Jesus has commanded us to obey Him in. This is part of being a disciple and being part of the church. So today, we have such a low view of the church, and I believe all of us do. I believe we are products of the cultural environment in which we grew up, and not just the worldly environment, but the church in America today has a low view of herself. I believe all of us have a low view of the church. I include myself in that, and I'm trying to improve in this area. But if we have a low view of the church, this area of church discipline seems really quite impotent. No, no real authority, no real power. What does it really do? If a member gets disciplined out of this church, he can just go over to another. Will be, he'll be readily accepted and just get on with life, or so he thinks. Or he may leave before any formal action is taken up against him. He sees where the trajectory is going and he just parts ways. But understand that baptized disciples of Christ simply don't have those options or those liberties before heaven itself. That's not how it works. An unrepentant sinner who has been approached by another but has no signs of repentance. And then one or two more go with him with earnest attempts for his repentance, and still there's no sign of repentance. And the final step is to take it to the church. This is where the formal official discipline comes in, and what the church is doing is actually conferring with the action that heaven has already done. If he refuses to listen to the church, then he is to be treated as a Jew in the first century would treat a heathen or Gentile and a tax collector. Now the church comes to this place where it then comes together to agree upon the status of that brother or sister from that point on. We're going to look at those two things this morning. The authority of the church and the agreement of the church. But the church has to take some kind of action with all of its members. We have to have a different view of that individual who has been excommunicated out of the church. Because up to this point, he has been regarded as a baptized disciple. But in terms of our personal relationship with Him, we have regarded Him as a brother all the way up into the point where He is excommunicated. But due to His repeated refusal to repent, we all now have to, under the direction of Christ Himself, regard that person differently once He's been excommunicated out of the church. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is not the most pleasant conversations to have, uh, but we have to be faithful to our Lord. The first, the first um, occurrence of church discipline happened in Acts 5. We read about it not long ago in the, in the service. 
And here we have in Acts chapter 5, the local church. And in the broad church today, as we look at what happened in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sold some property, and they held back some, but they actually represented what they sold the property for, and they lied to the church, and they gave their offering, but they did not give what they said that they were going to give. What they gave was different than what they represented in giving. Now that offense in the broad church today um, would just be regarded as very relatively minor if really anything to even be noted. But Peter confronted them in the presence of other disciples and he said that the sin that they committed against the church was really against the Holy Spirit who indwells the church. And they have not lied unto men, but they have lied to the Holy Spirit of God. They, Ananias and Sapphira, have come together and they agreed to put the Holy Spirit to the test in this. With the assumption that the Holy Spirit would not expose their sin. And they lied. That was their sin. They lied to the church, which the Holy Spirit received as lying to himself. And if you lie to the church, you're lying directly to Jesus Christ as well. And so God judged them both with instant death. That's pretty severe. And those consequences that we read about in following are very interesting because great fear came over all of the church who heard. Now, I guarantee you in that one moment that the view of the church and the people who made it up and the members went from here to here. And it says that the rest who were not members of the church, they dared not associate with them. And then around the whole community that surrounded them, it says great fear of that body of people came upon the whole community. They were somewhat trembling within the church, and they were trembling without the church. But, but here's the interesting thing. It's exactly the opposite view of many churches today in terms of their church growth pattern. To be seeker-friendly, to accommodate, to... Uh, all of this. But verse 14 in that chapter 5 says, not only did it not impede the church's growth, but quite the contrary, many true believers were added to the church in that context. And it's interesting to note because what church discipline does is it prevents the tares from multiplying in places that are supposed to be occupied by the wheat. So this morning I want us to consider two points as we move through Acts 18, from verses 17 through 20. First of all, I want us to consider the church's authority. Because I think if we understand more the church's authority, we can have a higher view of what really goes on. As it interacts with heaven itself from earth. When we pray, Lord... May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This becomes a part of the heaven and earth reality that comes together. The second thing I want us to consider is then the church's agreement. First of all, the church's authority and discipline. Second of all, the church's agreement and discipline. As we consider the church's authority and discipline, 
Verse 18 says, That assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We have this binding of loosing once again given to us. And this echoes back to Matthew 16 that we covered a number of months back where the same kind of language was used. And we explained there's a very special grammatical construction back there and it's fitting over here once again because it is so unique in this grammatical construction that was used in Matthew 16 and it's used the same here and it brings it together, and it's uh, one of the few, if only places, that this particular structure is used in the Scripture. And it's taken a past perfect, future, paraphrastic kind of verbal expression. It's it's kind of hard to to literally say it, and it it sounds smooth. And in, in most of our English versions, we don't quite capture the full uh, content of it. But what it's saying is, whatever you bind or loose here on earth will have been, that's the perfect tense, perfect tense is something that the action has happened in the past, but has continuing present results. Have been, okay? So whatever you bind will, there's the future, have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will have already been loosed in heaven. I think if we literally had translated the, the, the Greek in that very wooden but literal way, we would have um, not had so many problems in the church today. But the local church has the same kind of authority that Christ exhibited that He delegated to Peter and the Apostles back in Acts 16. And as we covered that in Acts 16, now we have the same phrases and the same binding and loosing given to the local church regarding the confession of a sinning brother. Now see, the local church has the authority to accept the confession of a sinning brother, and to embrace him, and to welcome him, and to assure him that he is a member of the body of Christ. The local church has that authority by Christ, delegated to her in this binding and loosing correspondence with heaven. But on the other hand, it also has the authority to do the opposite. It has the authority to no longer recognize this unrepentant person as a Christian. It has the same authority towards him and the same language that the Lord would use that he is to be as to you, as a tax collector and a Gentile, is to the first century Jew in his framework there. Now what does the Lord mean by that? Someone who is in a position of the Jews of the first century would, would regard tax collectors, uh, they viewed them as cheats. In fact, it would, it's almost difficult, if not impossible, to have lived in the first century uh, and have that kind of profession 
in that day without being a dishonest person. Our Lord is saying if the unrepentant sinner will not listen now even to the church, then let him be as a Jew would view a person as that tax collector or that pagan Gentile, that idolatrous person. And the local church has the God-given authority to take those positions toward its own members and those who desire to join in its membership based upon the credibility of one's profession of faith. We cannot ignore this. We cannot skirt it. We have to obey this, as difficult as it may be. So what does all this mean, binding and loosing? This is where a lot of confusion has come in. Whatever you bind or whatever you loose on earth, there's the local church, by the way, not the universal church, on earth, will have already been done in heaven. And this is the reference of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus taught back in Matthew 16 to Peter and the apostles. And keys are devices that open and close doors. The binding is in reference to binding someone in their sins and thus closing the door to the kingdom of God to such people who are unrepentant. The unrepentant sinner is bound in their sins. It's closed. The loosing is in reference to the loosing of someone from their sins. This is the opening of the kingdom by accepting the sinner's confession and affirming him in the kingdom of God. And all of this is according to the gospel, according to the words that Christ has given to us. So we don't make up new rules for this. We just simply take the word of God and we then press it into that application. Now the interesting thing here that we need to note is all of this that he's talking about here is in reference to professing Christians. Professing Christians. But the grammar makes it clear that the binding and the loosing is not saying when the church does something, then God then responds in like kind. What the church then decrees, God then puts his rubber stamp on. That is not how it's saying it. In fact, it's quite the other way around. The church, in other words, what it's not saying is if the church decides to put someone out, then God must also do that. If the church then also accepts a person as a Christian, then God must also accept that person as a Christian. This is not what it's saying. The church does not have the authority in that way but rather that the actions of heaven, God's actions are the primary mover, the first cause of this, and the church's is secondarily, and it follows the primary actions of heaven itself. Now when the church takes action here on the earth, the local church, the action in heaven has already taken place. When a church carries out the word of Jesus Christ, all it is doing is enacting the position that heaven has already taken toward an unrepenting but professing Christian. And as far as heaven is concerned, some are outside of the kingdom, 
that are still in the church. And when those churches do not practice discipline, the church simply has not caught up with heaven. You follow me? If the church would catch up with what heaven has already done, then it would be apparent what heaven's posture is toward those unrepentant sinners. But if the church doesn't take an action, it becomes very difficult or even impossible for people to tell what God's true response is to people who profess Christ, but who live like the devil. So the church has been given authority by Christ to bind and to loose, to make declarations regarding people's profession of faith, whether they are credible or not. And what the church is not doing is infallibly discerning if a person is regenerate or not. That's not for us to see. It's not what it's saying. But to make declarations regarding a person's profession, if that profession is credible. And this includes carrying out church discipline on unrepentant sinners. So the church has authority that has been delegated to her, and she is responsible for carrying out this authority under Christ in collaboration with heaven itself, so that we have the mind of Christ for His people and His church, and then to be faithful in carrying out what heaven has already acted upon. The second point here is the church's agreement. It says, again, if I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. See, we have this heaven and earth collaboration that's going on. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now Christians have often used this particular reference and quoted this particular section of the Bible in a time of prayer, where two or three are gathered together in a time of prayer. And I think that is true, yes, but that is not what it is saying here, and that is not the implication of the depth of which the two or three are gathered in Christ's name, and as they are praying, what is going on. It's not just a, a general statement here, but very specific to its context regarding church discipline. So these verses are referencing this agreement of the church regarding church discipline. So where two or three witnesses, now that echoes back to verse 16, where the two or three are gathered together as they go in that second step informally, and they, they openly talk to this brother about his sin, and they're verifying the, the, the words they're not necessarily witnesses at that time of the actual offense, but they're verifying the words to see if there's evidence in the case for this offense. And as they're hearing the words, and as they're, 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 everything might die just right there. There may not be evidence to ex escalate it further. There may be repentance right there, and then people are one, and so the circle is kept small. But now if it, if it has to go to the next step, these two or three then come forward echoing back to Deuteronomy 19, where you cannot convict on the basis of one testimony, and there has to be two or three witnesses 
in order to convict. But by the time the church has gotten to this point, it should have substantial evidence needed to move this forward that we are pretty clear that this brother is in sin and we can substantiate this and he's not repenting of his sins. Because a person cannot be condemned on the basis of one testimony. Now, why even, even if that were true and you had a person who has sinned and you had one other person who is confronting him, but that's all there is with no other substantial evidence, you have one person's word against another person's word, you can't move that forward any further, even if it's true. There has to be some collaborating, collaborative ef, uh, evidence that would make up another witness. It could be the own person's testimony. It could be a written report. It could be something that would substantiate the other, and then it would have to be weighed out. Now that's what's behind the two or three, as they have gathered and they are part of the verification of the evidence before the whole church, where two or three are gathered in Christ's name is in the context of church discipline, where the church then is gathered together to confront the brother and Christ is in the midst of them. So what are they asking for when they are gathered together as the church? Where they are gathered together, where two or three, and they're asking. They're asking for clarity and they're asking for wisdom of what heaven has already determined about this person regarding the evidence that has been displayed. They're also asking for confirmation in their actions in turning the person back over to the domain of Satan. They're asking for the discipline to do its work so that the flesh of this person may be destroyed, but their spirit may be saved. See, this is the prayer of the two or three in this context, and really it becomes the prayer of the whole church based upon those two or three. Probably spend a little bit more time in this passage in a subsequent week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that one of that scenario is when a person was living in immorality and Paul is writing back to the church of Corinth. And he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, this particular man, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, when the keys of the kingdom are exercised in the binding of sins, the unrepentant is turned back into, out into, the kingdom of Satan. As the keys are exercised with the authority given. The person is bound in their sin, meaning they are turned back out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. And that person who goes through excommunication no longer receives the benefits and the protections of the church under the headship of Christ. That person becomes a target for Satan. And he no longer has the protection of the headship of Christ and those benefits and blessings that are available here. And verse 19 says, 
And when that all happens, then it will be done for them as it is asked. And this is an affirmation that when a case of church discipline has been brought forth, and the two or three witnesses have been helpful in substantiating the case, and the church has given the verdict, that the church may know that Christ is in their midst, and they have acted according to His will. They have acted honorably. They have acted by His direction. And they have acted with His favor. It's an affirmation. When He says, I am there with you. For it is Christ that leads His church in these actions. And that's why the the passage concludes in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in My name, I am there in the midst of them. Now it appears from Scripture that those who have been excommunicated out of the church are in a special state. If you're listening carefully, you should be able to connect a few dots from here to our Bible study that we're doing midweek on Wednesdays. Three states of a person. First of all, there are the state of those who are unregenerate and they are unsaved people in the world outside of the church. The world, we would call those. They are outside of the kingdom of God and inside the kingdom of Satan. Where they are under the government of Satan, the god of this age, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air who deceives their hearts. There's another state of persons, and that is baptized disciples of Christ in His church. Those inside the kingdom of God and outside the kingdom of Satan. That's another state. Those keys were exercised this morning in baptism. The church, under the leadership of Christ, is a sphere of great blessings and a sphere of great protection in this world in which we still dwell. This is the sphere in which God baptizes disciples, and those baptized disciples can thrive and they grow and they develop in the faith. And this is what the Reformers would mean when they say, improve your baptism. Improve your baptism. It's often part of a baptismal prayer when, as an infant, we pray that God would grant them grace to improve their baptism. And while the church is intended for the regenerate, the church can include both regenerated and unregenerated souls. It has tares and it has wheat in its fold. It's, it's designed and meant for the wheat. And eventually, in the end, when Christ comes back and He then sifts the weed out from the tares and He then makes judgment between the sheep and the goats, it will all be weed and it will all be the sheep. But until then, we live in this other state. And if those whose lives show evidence within the church, those whose lives who show evidence of unregenerate lives, lives that are not becoming of Christians, those whose profession is not deemed credible, 
if those are allowed to stay in the church, there's severe implications for that. First of all, the individual himself is not brought into correction and will have no further growth in grace because discipline is a means of that grace. But secondly, the church itself will become tainted and it will lose favor with the Lord and everybody's sanctification will be hindered. And third, Christ's name and honor have not been given its due. We're covenantally bound together. We cannot ignore what Christ has commanded us. So the first state would be those unregenerate, unsaved people outside of the church in the kingdom of Satan. The second state are those baptized disciples of Christ in the church, in the kingdom of God, but outside the kingdom of darkness. But there's a third state, at least the way I see it, and perhaps maybe you've got a different perspective. But these are excommunicated individuals, and I think the Bible addresses them in a very particular way. These are ones who have formerly had the kingdom of God open to them. They've been loosed of their sins, and they have subsequently have had the kingdom doors shut, rebound in their sins. These are excommunicated. And when they are excommunicated, they then lose the protections and the blessings that they once had in the church under the headship of Jesus Christ. And in this excommunicated state, they are in a very precarious state. And it appears that the Bible treats excommunicated people than mere other regenerate, unregenerate people out in the world. That's why we are instructed to, in several passages of the New Testament, mark those people. Mark them. And this is one of the parts where the church has to agree together. We have to come together to agree on a new state of these unrepentant, professing Christians that have been excommunicated out of the church. We have to mark those people. And the Bible informs us of how we are to treat those people. It goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, you don't even eat or fellowship with such a people. So it's different than just treating them like unregenerate people of the world because it says, now I don't say not to eat and not to fellowship with the unregenerate people out in the world, for then you must needs go out of the world. No, you eat and drink and you have fellowship with the people of the world to win them to Christ. But this one who has already been in proximity of the gospel, who's already tasted of the heavenly gift, who's already, but now he has spurned the Spirit of God, you put him outside the church and now you, you mark that person and you treat him different than you even would an unregenerate person in the world. That's why I say I think there's a, a third state that we need to consider. But this state is a very special state. It's, it's not a permanent state at all. One can actually be regenerate and not in the kingdom of God. Are you following me on this? In this state. Because that's been shut out, that's been bound, and the keys have been exercised. But that state is unusual, and it can only be temporary. 
Excommunicated people become very special targets of Satan. In fact, it's almost like there's four steps of church discipline. Don't, don't hold me to this, but I think you understand what I'm talking about here. First of all, we have the single individual going to a sinner, and he's not confessing, he's not repenting of his sin. So two or three more go, as we've discussed in the past, and then he's still unrepentant, and he's still hardened. So you tell it to the whole church, and then he's still unrepentant, and he's hardened, and he doesn't repent. So now that it's like announcing to Satan, okay, here he is, now you deal with him. That's how Paul actually addressed it in 1 Corinthians 5. That's how he addressed it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. And that turning over to Satan, one of two things will happen. He, that person does become a very special target of the enemy. But one of two things will happen. Either that person who is actually regenerated... He will return to Christ's church repentant. He will. It certainly will happen. Because it is the Spirit of God that is working in him, and his soul will be vexed, and he cannot live in that state permanently. And he will return. We see this in 2 Corinthians, as Paul says, now that brother in 1 Corinthians 5, you receive him back. You receive him back. He's repented. And we, we see this, when church discipline is a regular, habitual practice of the church, we see actually more success in this if it's practiced well. And the discipline, in this case, has done its job. But if the person is truly unregenerate, and he's put out so that he's now a special target of the devil, he will become further hardened in his position of unrepentance, and he will not return. Or at least it's very unlikely that he will. And again, church discipline has done its job. Now while there may be cases, I've never heard or I've never read of one, where excommunication has ever happened more than once to a single individual. If it's done properly and in in the correspondence with heaven, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it would be rare, and by the very nature of what happens, it would be rare. And that's why it's so grave and weighty a thing it is when the church is faithful with this and we see someone from among our midst put out into the kingdom of Satan. The church's authority and the church's agreement both are factors in church discipline. And we have to come into an understanding and unity in this. When we come to think about the church, we, we, we come to a church like Heritage, and we get really comfortable with the people here. And we've been now, some of us, in this place long enough to know a good bit about each other and our lives and our weaknesses. When we first came, we had kind of an elevated view of everything and everybody here because we didn't know that much. But after we got to know these people, we realized that a lot of these people have the same kind of struggles that we have going on that no one knows about. 
We might have even gotten to the place where we realized that the elders and the deacons are just men like we are. And so we come to despise a group of people like that. The word despise just simply means to think little of. To think little of. So we come to think little of the church. This gathering. Well, those people were never important in themselves to begin with. Were we? None of us are important, no matter who you are, in and of yourself, to begin with. That's not the point. And when we attack the church, we attack Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happened when Saul was going to Damascus and he is going to persecute the church and Christ stops him in his tracks and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you give even a glass of water to the least of these of my disciples, Jesus says, it is as if you give it to me. What you say about a church reflects your attitude of the Lord of the church. And it represents something of your thinking about its head and its owner and Christ Himself. It is not our church. It is Christ's church. And He loves her and values her dearly. So much as He loved the church, He gave Himself for her. And He shed His blood. And He took all of her sins upon Himself so that there was no worth in any of its members in themselves, but the worth is what He has given to them in His righteous garment and who He is in His life living in them. That's what gives us the worth. It's not that we are important in of ourselves. Who are we? So our view of the church is our view of Christ. And Christ is in the midst of her church. And we have a responsibility to Christ in this very matter. The church is the Lord's body. I mean, it's the Lord's body. And don't let anyone think it's just a minor thing to walk away from that. It just doesn't work that way. If heaven has already made her action, his action, and the church just needs to catch up with it, you think you can just walk away from that, don't be fooled. It's not the way that correspondence works. People come and they get used to the church body that they're in and then they kind of get to know those people a little bit more and they realize those people are just common. Well, across town it seems like there's a better group that has their act together a little bit better and so I'm going to go over to the church that's a little better 
It may seem a little better for a while, but then you're going to come to realize that those are common people too. And you better be aware of thinking little of the church, the church where God has placed you. Because what you should be making for all of this all along is Christ Jesus the Lord who is the head of the church. He is the importance of the church. He is what gives it its worth. And that's why in the previous context of this passage that we are not to despise the little ones that God has so highly valued. That's the very previous context. And so we are not to despise the church or even one of the least of them in her. Because doing so is a reflection upon how we think of Christ and how we speak of Him. Now, it's a wonderful thing, folks. And you don't have any higher privilege on earth than to be a member of Christ's body. You have no higher privilege on earth. And let that sink in. And let us have a high view of the church, not because of the importance of the people that make it up, but because of what Christ has done for her and who He is in her. May the Lord help us to maintain her purity. Christ is the head of the church. So let's be faithful to honor Him, even in the unpleasantries of disciplining those that He has already acted upon. Let's be faithful with the stewardship that He's entrusted to heritage. God help us. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we pray that the Spirit would conform us to the image of Christ. That we would love You in this way that is often difficult and unpleasant. And we pray we would be faithful in the teaching and obedience to the teaching in these things whatsoever You have taught us. We pray that You would help us each step along the way that each one of us would walk In faith, we know that we sin, we sin often, but Lord, may we be blameless by repenting of our sins and trusting Christ and not living in the uncharacteristic state of unrepentance. Lord, we pray You would soften all of our hearts today and that You would give us a great and high view of Christ and a high view of His bride. It's a great privilege to be a part of her. And now as we gather ourselves together around this table that you have prepared for that bride, we pray that we might truly feast in the good things of our Lord Jesus Christ and know that His presence is among us this day. And we pray this in His holy name. Amen.